Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 194 of the Fun With Cars Formula One podcast for coverage of the Australian Grand Prix from Melbourne, Australia. I'm Robin Warner. And I am Jim Lau, and it is wonderful to have the 2016 season underway and uh, a pretty dramatic weekend, actually, with wet practice, so we didn't get a, a good idea of where people all stood on Friday. And then uh, qualifying was a whole interesting uh, situation in itself. And then onto the race where we had uh, ended up having a really dramatic race with the first red flag of the season and a giant crash. And ultimately the result, uh, I guess you could say it was predictable, but we kind of got there in a very roundabout way. So uh, all in all, I think a uh, very exciting weekend. And especially with the, the crash and everything, most of all, that nobody was injured in uh, what was a very, very spectacular crash. Uh, first and foremost, completely agree it was... The spectacular crash, it had people scared, but it did show what we have today in terms of very advanced, very effective safety systems in the car. However, uh, as you mentioned, qualifying was an interesting thing, and there was, you know, a near-immediate backlash from many folks, including the team principals across the board, about this new qualifying format, which we discussed in our last podcast, which was episode 193. It was this, I'm going to say, rushed to completion uh, new qualifying format that the World Motorsport Council put together. And I have seen it once, you have seen it once, and I very much want to hear your opinion, Jim. Yeah, and that's basically the point, is that we both saw it once. So I, I agree with what you said. Uh, I was rushed to come to a plan, and, and like we talked about in the last show, uh, part of what was weird about this is it was announced and talked about it, said, hey, we're going to change up qualifying, this is going to be really exciting. And then there was a couple of different revisions of how it went through, and for a while it was, oh, it's going to be six cars eliminated. Oh, no, no, it's seven. It turned out it was seven uh, in the end. Uh, and then and how uh, seven minutes into the sec into the session, every 90 seconds, someone gets eliminated, and we were kind of thinking about how that might really affect the running and, and, you know, try to, how teams are going to figure it out to try to maximize what they're going to do. But ultimately the people setting the fastest times are probably still going to be near the top. So it has more to do with just changing when the on-track action is than it really is about, you know, really changing the order of things. But in practice, it was pretty weird and mixed up, uh, partly because it was the first time that it happened. Uh, it was not in, in partly because it was uh, so, so recently that it was, decided on that this was that this was going to be the plant. So normally they were supposed to have in testing a simulation of this kind of session so that people could, all the engineers, all the drivers could get a sense for, you know, how to strategize around it. I mean, you'd think you could sort of sit down with a sheet of paper and the rule book and, and make sense of it. But it's one of these one of these kind of rules that just really, uh, I think, to, to run through it and sort of understand how the session unfolded. Okay, if I'm near the top of the session, I'm okay, I'm safe. But uh, what if I'm near the bottom? Uh, the fact that uh, unlike now where the sessions end and there's a checkered flag, and if you're on a hot lap, uh, you can finish that lap and that counts. That doesn't count with knockout qualifying or with this elimination qualifying, what the new one's called. So that was a thing that stymied a lot of people. And I'm sure they knew that looking at the rule book, but to see it happen in person uh, was pretty frustrating to see uh, drivers who were near the back and setting a much faster lap and in a few cases finished that faster lap and it would have moved them up, except that time ran out on them uh, while, while the clock was still counting down. So uh, as I suspected early on in the last show, part of the confusion was that the on-screen graphics and all the way of communicating with the fans, what's going on and, and with the commentators really uh, wasn't ready yet. Uh, so they had this little countdown clock, but um, that wasn't, first of all, it didn't happen in the first few cars and then it sort of wasn't maybe the clearest way they could show what was going on. But ultimately I think to, to bin it after one race uh, may have been premature. I mean, I'm not saying that this is the way that qualifying should be the way it was here in Australia, 
but what I'm saying is to to have it happen once where it's new to everyone and it's a new season and there's you know new team there's a bunch of new drivers and a bunch of you know movements in the different teams people being shifted around and all that maybe premature I think maybe if we give it a couple of a couple of sessions and uh, you know let people think about it and talk about it and strategize about it after seeing it happen in person that I don't know that it's a given that it would just always be terrible because in this case, this qualifying session was pretty bad because uh, in the last three, two, three, almost maybe four minutes of each session, uh, things just kind of petered out because uh, a lot of the guys at the very top, uh, you know, with, with the Ferraris, the Ferraris, you know, in third and fourth place behind the Mercedes, they knew they weren't going to go enough faster. They didn't have the pace to really go challenge the Mercedes. So they decided, okay, well, this, this is where it is. And so then all of a sudden the clock down, the, the countdown clock just keeps counting down and Hamilton doesn't need to go prove anything because he's already set the best lap ever uh, for, for Albert Park. Uh, Rosberg understands he can't go any faster to do it. And then the Ferraris just kind of drop out. So it really petered out. But uh, I think there's there's not there's times when that may not be the case and that it could actually, you know, it did have some exciting moments as well. So I think that could happen again in the future. But now it seems like it won't matter because I think they're going back to the old one for Bahrain. And that's a good thing. And let me tell you why, in my opinion, because what we had here was, as you saw, it just petered out. And everything you said is true. It was just the first time and people still learning and they'd get better at it. But there were a few, what I would call fairly fundamental flaws. The first one is, we saw it in practice, I think it was Q2, where the countdown, the elimination started and you had 90 seconds and stuff like that. But um, one driver was on that and recovered in the last, I don't know, 15 seconds, recovered uh, from that 90 seconds and moved up a few places, had a better lap, and that pushed back other people. And then all of a sudden, who all of a sudden there was a driver that was theoretically six minutes away from being eliminated. All of a sudden, he was 90 seconds away from being eliminated, which means he would have had to be about to cross the line to start another flying lap to have any chance to recover. Right. You, he sort of would have to be on a flying lap already at that point. It's not enough notice to sort of say, oh, now I need to react. It's like, you have to have already been there, which I think was the idea. It was like, it, during qualifying, always be on a flying lap, but that doesn't really, you can't really do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could say that, but the only way to really protect yourself is, one, be Lewis Hamilton, or two, be... uh be in a position where you're always more or less setting flying laps. You're always trying. And that's really not a reasonable, conceivable thing for people to do the way modern tires work and modern management of the qualifying sessions work with knockout qualifying. It's just uh, not possible. You would, you would wear out several sets of tires and be hosed for the race. If that you, if you went that way and the other alternative is like, okay, well just try your best with one qualifying lap and as road conditions improve and everything else, if you just got unlucky with timing, you're hosed, and that's the end of it, and you qualify more poorly. And people take that route, and then qualifying just peters out and becomes this total snoozer show. So that's one concern. The other concern that we didn't see in Australia, but I think is very plausible, what if we have intermittent weather conditions where, you know, it's raining at the beginning of the qualifying session, but then it starts drying out. Well, then you're doubly screwed if you didn't have a fast lap in, and it's just going to be hectic and chaotic and 
what I would call very unfair. What if there's a red flag in the middle of the session? How does that affect people that are in the middle of a flyer and things go on? It just, there's those types of scenarios, which aren't that hard to come up with, that could really throw a wrench in things and feel profoundly unfair. And then it gets to, like, what's the root? What is the root of qualifying? It is how fast can this car go with this driver in it? And I feel like this system is so complicated and so convoluted that it makes it really hard to see the purity of that. This is the one avenue where there is no limitations of any kind. There's no fuel rate. Um, there's no fuel rate limitations. It's the best tire you have. It is everything in ideal circumstances. How fast does this car go around this track? And in my opinion, we lost that. And would we gain some of that back with more experience with this qualifying setup? Yeah, maybe some. But there's no there's no way we're going to gain it all back. And finally, I have to reiterate what was wrong with the last form of knockout qualifying, which, as you say, we're most likely going back to. I thought that was a great, exciting setup we had before. There's no reason to change it. If the World Motorsport Council really wants to change something, I have a proposal. This isn't that no downforce thing again, is it? No, 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 no. That's a whole other proposal. That's another proposal, which I'm still a fan of, by the way. But no, this if they want to change something, if they want to make the racing more exciting, take away the 100-liter fuel limit. Make it 120 liters. Keep the fuel rate limit that they have. Get rid of the 100-liter limit because that will reduce the amount of fuel saving people are doing, and it will reduce the amount of lift and coasting that we see, and I think that overall in aggregate would make a better show. Okay, so one of the other proposals Bernie Ecclestone personally has talked about, and it's the, the power structure here is kind of strange because Bernie Ecclestone is CEO of Formula One, but he doesn't have absolute say over what the rules are going to be because that goes through the FIA and this World Motorsport Council and the F1 Strategy Working Group. And there's it's a whole it's a whole structure that's kind of bizarre. But every once in a while, Bernie Ecclestone is the one that will come up with these ideas like, oh, there should be sprinklers on the tracks because isn't it great when it rains and then it shakes things up? And sometimes that is pretty exciting and can really make a race dramatic. But the idea of having sprinklers seems really, you know, kind of just cheesy and, and artificial and dumb. Uh, and there's things like that about having kind of a joker lap where the, you know, to improve overtaking where every once in a while you can just take a slightly different line and cut a corner or whatever, which is something they do in Rallycross and it has its applications, but just doesn't seem like the right thing for Formula One. But one of the things he has proposed is having some kind of a reverse grid or some similar kind of penalty thing. Penalty time, I think was his proposal such that you qualify and say whoever's fastest is at the top, but you would have a time penalty added to that qualifying time based on how well you finished in the previous race. The idea being that it's not just always the fastest guy out of the front so that then at the beginning of the race, he takes off because he's the fastest guy and then the whole field just spreads out. But it's to, to mix things up, make racing exciting. And of course, in lesser series, uh, there are uh, reverse grids where the, the finishing result of one race becomes the reverse starting grid or the reverse, reverse top 10 for the next one. And that encourages lots of overtaking, lots of crazy things. So that was but his that's, idea. That's not true in any like true top form of motor racing. That's the type of thing you might see in sprint car or some other things, which is exciting, but this isn't, those aren't hour and a half long Grand Prix. Those are 15 minute uh, heat races and maybe a 20 minute feature race, something like that. I mean, to me, that's not the right place for formula one at all. And Bernie is old. So, yeah. So in this case, thankfully that's not the case, but I guess in a way, 
is it a terrible thing that with elimination qualifying that every once in a while the, the grid gets a little bit mixed up and somebody who maybe has faster pace uh, just because the strategy, the timing got a little bit wonky, ends up in a, an out of out of place, uh, you know, at the artificially low spot. I mean, sometimes uh, when there's a wet but dry and qualifying session, part of the excitement of it is, oh, we're going to have some really fast guys that are going to have to make their way through the field. And that'll be a little bit more exciting than just everyone starts where they are and they just spread out more and more over, over the course of the race. Sometimes that is part of the fun. So it's, it's kind of a devil's advocate position because I get that that's a little bit wonky. But it's at least not an artificial thing. Yeah, and what would be the incentive for qualifying at that point? I mean, at that point, it's not exactly the case, but it almost becomes qualifying is a lottery. I think that's been proposed too, actually. <laughs> well, I don't see real value in that. I, I think that more fundamentally than anything else, what I see as a problem is adding so much complication to the format. I think the simpler something is that still works, the better it is. Now, knockout qualifying that we had last year and that I think slash hope we're going back to is on the more complicated complicated side of things, but it was reasonably easy enough to follow and was a format that people liked. So what I would say is do not add any more complication to that. If you want to make the racing more exciting, work on incentivizing uh, maximum attack in the race. And there's a lot of circumstances where people feel tire limited or fuel limited or fuel rate limited, and they're doing things like coasting or getting their way through. And I think that that is the best way to uh, make the racing more exciting. Qualifying was already exciting. Let's keep it that way. And by the way, you know, the Australian Grand Prix as a race as a whole was an exciting race. And I don't think that was evident so much really at all because of a mixed up qualifying grid. It was more evident because of the less regulated starting procedures that the drivers had. So there was more, there was more, there was a bigger difference between the best and worst start. I mean, Vettel shot off compared to Hamilton's relatively lackluster start. Yeah, that was, uh, of course, the dramatic opening to the race. And uh, so I guess to, to close out the qualifying thing, I think the, the probably the best news, if we do go back to the old qualifying format, is that you won't have to explain it to new people. It's not a new thing that they have to make graphics for, that the, that the presenters have to get their head around. At least people who have been fans for a few years know how it works and can, can explain it to others. And at least a lot of us will understand how it works, what the implications are, and the teams should know it pretty well. Uh, you know, I, I feel for the guys at Haas where this is their, you know, their first race in Formula One ever, uh, you know, and uh, that's like, okay, this is how qualifying works. And they do it. And they're like, okay, now it's changing. And this, now we're going back to this other format. But whatever, they're a bunch of smart guys. And uh, I uh, I think that team is going in exciting places. And both Esteban Gutierrez and uh, Romain Grosjean have experience in that previous format. So no need to worry. Yeah, that was super dramatic. I mean, it was a combination of a super, super great start for really both Ferraris, but especially Sebastian Vettel. And a not terrible, but not a not, not excellent starts for the Mercedes guys. Uh, and then Hamilton, of course, blamed it on Rosberg, saying that it was really because of the way Rosberg sort of was uh, the way he held Hamilton up. And, you know, that was, I guess, Hamilton being Hamilton again. But on lap two, I think Hamilton was down as far as sixth place. I mean, that was not what we Seventh. expected to start the season. I, I think he was, well, maybe that was a few laps with uh, pit rotations, but he was at low as low as seventh at one point. And real quick, I, you know, Vettel had a diamond dynamite start. He did really well. 
Kimi Raikkonen had a reasonably good start, but what he did, he actually pulled off a very clever pass in turn two, I think it was, and went around the outside of both Mercedes. You know, one was a little bit caught up by the other, and Vettel, ahead of the two Mercedes, like, brake checked them, not on purpose, but brake checked them just a little bit, slowed them up, and Kimi rocketed right around them and into second. It was a brilliant move by him. It was such a hot move, it was on fire, which turned out to be a bad thing later on. I think the the fear for a lot of people was if, at the start, the Mercedes both just rocketed off and had a huge gap over the rest of the field, Ferrari and Red Bull and everybody else, that would be pretty lame because that would set us up for another season of super Mercedes dominance, and that would not be super exciting for a lot of people. So the idea that all of a sudden, oh, look, it's the Ferraris and uh, Williams and a Red Bull, and it was you know a really dramatic start, uh, was... A pretty pretty good way, even even if you know I was rooting for Hamilton, having predicted that uh, he would go from pole position to a victory and all that. Uh, that even even so, it was still exciting to see. Hey, this is something different, and through some combination of the differences between last year's and this year's cars, but also like you mentioned, the regulations around the start procedure and the single pedal clutch instead of, or single paddle clutch uh, instead of double, uh, more more reliance on the drivers, more variability in how well your start goes, led to. Uh, some, like you say, big differences in how the start works. And uh, that was set up the beginning of the race as a, uh, a really fun battle to watch and uh, put Hamilton on the back foot. And, you know, I wouldn't have thought uh, going into this race that you'd say Hamilton was really, really struggling to get around Max Verstappen and a Toro Rosso for a lot of the race, but that is how it panned out. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm going to jump ahead here a little bit because it does pertain to what you were talking about at the beginning of the race. The top 10 points paying positions were filled by seven different teams. Mercedes, Ferrari, Red Bull, Williams, Haas, Force India, and Toro Rosso. So very encouraging to see that many teams, seven out of 11, score points in the first Grand Prix. And as you said, we saw real pace from both the Red Bull and the Toro Rosso. Real serious pace. The Williams... Uh, had its moments of ups and, ups and downs, but Felipe Massa finished fifth, and Botas was not that far behind in eighth. So two points paying positions for the Williams, and of course the Ferrari looked very very strong. Both Kimi and Sebastian Vettel drove brilliantly well. They were one two for a while, and the Mercedes uh, of Rosberg, which was nipping at their heels, as you said, Hamilton was a few paces behind. He couldn't. He couldn't catch up to them so much. So it's very encouraging to see we have the potential for a much tougher battle to the championship than we did in 14, 2014 or 2015. Yeah, I think so. And it, also to see Haas score points, uh, not to not to just completely just jump to the gun with the Americans, but Man, that is super great. Uh, so, Dude, it's the American way to jump to the gun, so that's well, completely appropriate. That's, that's not even a thing people say. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Roman Grosjean was so, so happy in the uh, in the interviews after the race. Uh, and we didn't, you know, he didn't have that many uh, on-track, uh, you know, moments. He was doing well to hold up the guys behind him and just drove clean and drove well and, and was able to bring the car home in sixth and under no, I mean, Hulkenberg was behind him and pretty close, but not a, not a super big threat. And it was just a solid, solid race. And, uh, it was just this genuine emotion. I mean, the Haas guys were super, super happy for Romain and, uh, and it was just a great result to, to get points on the debut like that. 
and really set them up well. I think uh, the going back to the older qualifying format will do well for them because they'll have just more chances to set laps and continue to improve their pace, not getting knocked out at the beginning of the session, hopefully. So that can only put them in a, in a better spot going forward. Of course, all the other teams will have the ability to do, uh, improve their own times as well. But I think for a new team like that, uh, getting up to speed, that'll be good. But of course, uh, we have to talk about the the other Haas driver, Esteban Gutierrez, and his crash with Fernando Alonso, which was a kind of came at it. It looked kind of bizarre at first, right? Because we saw Gutierrez's car off in the gravel trap, and it was like, oh, he must have just spun and gone off in the gravel. Why is his left rear wheel broken? What's a, what the heck is that in the background? And it's this super mangled McLaren, and then Alonso hops out of it. Thankfully, just was like hopped out, looked completely fine, or maybe just a little bit of a limp, but. It was, I wouldn't uh, describe it as a super mangled McLaren. I would say it was a very, it was an upside down, very intact McLaren tub. Right. Someone forgot to put on the suspension and the wheels and the wings. <laughs> it 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 was an excellent example of the structural integrity of a modern Formula One car, and. As a result of that, Fernando Alonso crawled out of it uh, in the small gap that he had, and he was, generally speaking at least, just fine. Right. He was doing interviews after the fact and just saying, like, yeah, I guess, you know, that sucked, but I'm fine, and, you know, carry on. He was he was more concerned about, well, I guess we're probably going to lose that engine and lose that car, and we're going to have to build some more stuff, and that's unfortunate, but, like, the whole sort of question of, oh, yeah, you know, himself and medical issues and whatever. He's like, oh, no, I think I'm just, yeah, a little, you know, a little bit in a little bit of pain, but nothing too bad. And I'm more worried that we don't have that engine to use anymore. So uh, that which is basically the the best news you can have after what was really a pretty crazy crash because it was it was some wheel to wheel contact, which uh, sent the McLaren uh, into a bit of a roll. Um, but just kind of just kind of moving uh, and, and, and getting sideways. But then the way he just caught the gravel in just kind of an unlucky way uh, that then That's really what it was. He the caught the gravel and the left and the left side of the car just dug in. It was the left front that dug in first and sent the barrel. And because of where the accident was and when it happened, he had very little time to decelerate. So he was going well over 100 miles an hour. So tons of kinetic energy that had to be dissipated with very little to do. The gravel didn't do much because uh, he touched the gravel that dug in. He was airborne. Right. So, uh, yeah, it was a very horrific crash. And I, I have a couple different things I want to bring up about this. But the first thing that I want to mention was bravo to Esteban Gutierrez. He was such a genuine gentleman and human being through that whole scene as the crash happened immediately afterwards and even later on after he knew everyone was okay in the interviews, Esteban was very consistent. He was like, oh my God, a fellow driver is potentially hurt. Is he okay? He rushed up to Alonso. Are you okay? Is is everything okay? After the race, people knew he was, Alonso was medically cleared and people asked, hey, whose fault was that, Esteban? Esteban is like, I don't want to talk about that right now. The important thing is that Fernando is okay, and I was like, God, uh, seriously, that as as a as a former driver myself, that really warms my heart to see to see a driver say, "Whose fault this is is so trivial compared to the fact that an accident like that could have offed another driver, and he walked out of the car and was cleared by medical. He's fine. That's amazing, and it is." Yeah, there was actually a stewards investigation uh, with the the two drivers and looked at the data and so on. And 
sort of talked to the both drivers about it, and they determined there was no, it was just a racing incident. There was no blame one way or the other. Uh, I think looking at it, you could sort of, you could say, okay, well, Alonso, at least, if, if nothing else, had a better view of what was going on and where he was putting his wheels, and it didn't look like Esteban Gutierrez did anything weird. So you could make the case that, or, you know, Esteban could have made the case to say, oh, I was just driving along, and this crazy guy came up and hit me, and what the hell is that, and whatever. But it's sort of like, as he says, it just, that doesn't matter. I mean, both of them were out of the race. It's not going to change any of that. And uh, it was just a matter of, hey, as long as everybody's okay, that's fine. And we don't really care who was, you know, who was to blame. Like you said, it really doesn't matter, I guess, how how exactly it happened. Uh, But this is sort of timely with all the discussions of uh, head protection, uh, cockpits or halos or whatever. And immediately that sprung to people's mind of like, oh, man, would that have helped in this case? Or could that have actually been a problem if, uh, uh, you know, Alonzo were stuck in this car with a halo? So that's all of a sudden become a talking point about, Oh, what if we had halos? Should we have had halos? Is this a problem? So thankfully, of course, in this case, there was not a head injury. There was, you know, it's not any kind of clear cut case to say, okay, yeah, the halo would have, would have necessarily helped. Uh, And then some people immediately did start asking the question, well, actually a halo might've actually been bad here. So uh, Button uh, specifically actually came out and said, okay, let's, let's not jump to conclusions here, people. Like we can't say for sure based on how the car was that a halo would have been worse. So, you know, on one side or the other, let's not all jump on this incident and start using that to make a point about, Halos are good or halos are bad, uh, and I think that's I think that's fair enough as well. I mean, if, of course, every crash is going to be slightly different, and I think the main thing with a with a halo and this cockpit protection is the the crashes that really just I mean, of course, there's not crashes that should happen and crashes that shouldn't, but the kind of incidents that we've had that have caused really serious injuries and fatalities have been the kind of things that just uh, should be you know it's not into a, a safer barrier or something, but you know into trackside equipment or uh, just things like that where um, these really unknown crazy situations. Uh, that we're trying to protect for. So um, it's, you know, this doesn't, I don't think, prove anyone's case one way or the other about the Halo system, in my opinion anyway. But what do you think? I largely agree with you, although I do have a little bit of reservation uh, seeing this accident was a a real eye-opener in terms of the combination of the Halo system and gravel traps can be potentially a problem because... When you have a gravel trap and the car is inverted, all of a sudden that halo can be can dig into the gravel and cause a much more massive deceleration. It could potentially, uh, like, depending on the circumstance of the crash, could cause a high spot in the gravel trap because it pushes it. And as the car flips over, all of a sudden there's not enough head protection. There's, in my mind, there's true concern to uh, the halo system and uh, I there are one in a million circumstances where anti-lock brakes are not as good as as regular old-fashioned uh, brakes and that does not mean let's give up on anti-lock brakes and so in that sense I'm not saying let's give up on the halo but what I am saying this does show us a example of it it doesn't even do that. It gives us a reminder that there are circumstances where the halo can actually be a hindrance and not a help. That's what that's what I think this brings to light, and it's something we should pay close attention to. I would agree with that. And again, just the the main thing in this case, everybody's fine. And uh, you know, it's it's unfortunate, I guess, um, where for Haas it could have been potentially a double points finish. Um, but even for McLaren, points seemed pretty unlikely uh, with, uh, you know, 
Alonzo had praised the car over the weekend, saying, oh, this, this car is fantastic, and it's so much improved, and isn't this great? Uh, but still, what was it? Button ended up 14th uh, where he was, and uh, it's it's sort of, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, as we've said for a year now, hopefully Honda and McLaren can continue to move forward and, and you know, get these, these two great drivers that they have into a car that they deserve. Uh, but it's, uh, man, it's, it's, it's tough that, that that team is still not uh, doing what we hoped and uh, just, you know, even, even in qualifying, it looked like, you know, they were going to get into the top 10 or whatever, but with the way they, uh, the way everything uh, came together, it just, that, that didn't happen. So it's, I guess for McLaren Honda fans, um, you know, of course, Alonso's incident notwithstanding, not a super uh, encouraging start to the season, I would say. Yeah, and actually, Ron Kasky uh, sent us a wonderful message about this very incident. He said, Grateful Alonzo is okay. F1 should be praised for its safety measures. No one else saw what I saw, though. Look how close the huge front tire comes to Alonzo's head. And he sent us a picture, and the, I believe it's his right front wheel. It's still tethered, but it is just inches from his head. He said, look how close it comes to his head. F1 should implement cockpit halos or something else to protect drivers before we lose another one. Can't wait to hear the podcast. Well, you're hearing it now. Thank you very much. Don't get me wrong. I can see the wheel was still connected to the car, but regardless, F1 needs to continue to increase safety measures. So I just had this argument about, ooh, we should be careful with halos. And what Ron Kasky is saying is immediately before we get to this gravel trap situation, we were very close to a situation where the halo would indeed have saved Alonzo's life if, for any reason, the tether failed. So, yeah, it's a complicated issue to be sure. Yeah, and we've seen that a few times with the tethers, which, of course, are the tethers themselves are a solution to another problem, which is, of course, in some crashes when the car just becomes completely separated from the vehicle or the tire and wheel become completely separated from the vehicle and can bounce off in whatever direction into other drivers, into fans, into marshals, into whatever. So... Uh, it's it's so tough because you know all these things have to work together and, and even like we talked about is that should be gravel runoff should it be paved runoff should there be a a berm at the edge that's grass to to maintain the competitive spirit of not driving off the track or is that a safety thing so all these things have to be considered together in of course in general the tethered wheels are probably going to be better than non-tethered because it's once once a uh, wheel tire combination is flying off in whatever direction there's just it's you know so many ways that can go wrong uh but also when a wheel is on a tether and then all of a sudden, you know, the, the suspension is broken, that's then this big massive thing with a bunch of rotational energy and, and just all the weight to it um, that's bouncing around that can be pretty near the cockpit and, and can still go wrong in all these ways. So uh, I, you know, I think we have to give a lot of credit where it's due to the, just the safety angle that the FIA has been putting on Formula One and improving all the safety. Because as you said, the, the, the cockpit of the car was intact. And so that was fine. It was all the ancillary bits that had been broken off and, uh, and and just you know crashed away but uh the structure of the car which of course goes under all these kind of safety crash tests and things like that uh that really uh was a huge factor in this whole thing and uh, all these other little developments with uh the way there are tethers and all that just are all part of the whole picture and of course the cockpit protection one way or another if that's a halo if that's a windshield of some sort or whatever um has to be has to be considered as well totally agree and what we can say first last and mostly is that we're very happy that Fernando is okay and you know also very happy with the way Esteban Gutierrez reacted to this I think that every single driver should uh, use that as an example of the correct way to deal with those situations 
speaking of drivers that maybe weren't quite as uh, magnanimous, uh, would be the teammates, uh, Carlos Sainz Jr. and Max Verstappen, particularly Max Verstappen, who was acting more like a 16-year-old now that he's an 18-year-old than he was last year. So he was getting very heated on the radio about his teammate holding him back. And the team responded, yeah, you can race him freely. And he said, no, get him around, like, let, tell him to let me by. I, I have to say, Max has been so impressive pretty much from day one through this Australian Grand Prix today. He raced very quick, very hard, and it's been a very capable car. But that attitude was really disappointing to hear. Yeah, I, I agree, because it did seem like Max had the pace advantage. So this was not a case of like, hey, tell this guy to slow down and pull out of the way because I just want to be faster and I think that I'm faster. It's like, no, it really seemed like he was faster. Uh, of course, later on in the in the race when Max actually spun, and thus putting himself quite a bit far behind, uh, uh, you know, the, the battles up ahead, uh, he was able to catch back up to signs and uh, and was sort of all over him there. So he definitely had the pace advantage. And this is just how he expresses that to the team and to his teammate. Uh, and what the team decides to do with that uh, information uh, is, yeah, it's, it's a bit tough because I understand he's frustrated. And uh, some of the jokes were about, OK, well, this uh, pit lane to driver communication uh, has been restricted and maybe we don't get all the, the little you know, back and forth that we used to. Oh, but what about team, to, you know, teammate to teammate, car to car communication? Now, wouldn't that have been something if uh, Max could get in the ear and actually start talking, you know, talking whatever to Carlos Sainz and saying, all right, dude, here's what, you know, this is what this has got to be. Or uh, what I know I, that that would be radio I would want to hear right is uh, is just what exactly you would say to your teammate at the moment and uh, trying to try to psych him out or whatever it it did seem weird that the, the, he kept you know asking for the team's help in this but we've heard that from other drivers too I mean other drivers that we really respect and think should be able to get around just about anyone in another Formula One car which I think goes back to just the difficulty of overtaking even with DRS and in this case of course it's evenly matched cars and and through most of this race it was evenly matched tires as well because they pitted just one lap apart. And they were on the same compound, so it was just yeah the way that the way the things came together with uh, the pace and the you know the particular track of course in Melbourne not having uh, a lot of great passing opportunities you just have to make the opportunities and uh, he you know that's the thing Max was able to make these moves like when they both got around Julian Palmer uh, Max was able to make a pretty impressive move to to you know follow signs through this uh, making the pass and and hold on to this but it's like Carlos Sainz is just really really close to Max's ability. Uh, maybe not quite as fast and outright pace, but certainly canny in terms of where he places the car and making himself super difficult to pass. And it's just, you know, at this level, that's just super difficult for Max to deal with. So hopefully they can get the communication going between the drivers and the team so that at least if the team says, makes a strategy call to say, okay, this is what we want to do for the team and you guys work for the team. And this is kind of how the system has to work for everybody to be successful, that the, the drivers will listen. But we've now had a few times where they said, "Okay, Carlos, you know, you need to switch positions," and he says, "Oh, no, 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 I don't, I don't want to do that." And uh, and then the team says, "Okay, you get one more lap." But to have that kind of negotiation while the driver is out there trying to drive his heart out and setting, you know, what could be really good laps or whatever, but under all the other stress of what's going on, that seems like not the time to have that conversation. I feel like that should be something that's dealt with with the team internally, and that you say when we get on the radio and say this, that's what you do. It's absolutely the case, and it does segue into another important thing this was the first uh race where we had even more limited radio communication and i have to tell you that i'm again not entirely seeing the point of this and the root 
of this goes back to we had an there was a brief era in time where the technology was advanced enough but the rules were not quite there that there was two-way telemetry between the engineer and the car so the engineer uh could see had telemetry to the car to see data diagnostics to sensors and all these various things to have an understanding where the car was and the car uh, and could send the car information updated software or whatever to adjust it on the fly in real time i remember i believe it was david coulthard when he was at mclaren during the monaco grand prix if memory serves me and this would have had to be closer to 15 years ago now that there was an issue with the car and it was starting to run hot and there was an oil pressure situation. They found they could fix the car with software, sent new software, and he continued on and won the race. So that was kind of impressive. And they said, ooh, two-way telemetry, that's not a good thing. Let's outlaw that because it should be about car and driver more pure and all this kind of stuff. But What's happened as a result is the steering wheel systems on the cars have gotten more and more complicated. There's more and more things that the drivers could adjust, and the two-way telemetry continued on just in the form of the engineers telling the driver, change this setting, change that setting, do this, do that. Now we're in an era that they want to, again, limit uh, what the drivers can do no, they're not trying to limit what the, they're trying to limit what the engineers can tell the drivers to do to make it more of a pure driver and car situation. But it's kind of foolhardy in my opinion because the cars just simply are far more complicated than they were 10 years ago and they were complicated then. So, in my opinion, I think what they should do is say okay, well, we're in a new era of Formula 1, let's keep the progress going. Let's bring back the two-way telemetry so that the engineers can adjust things on the car themselves and keep the driving more focused and more pure for the drivers. So the drivers don't have 75 different settings they can play with during the race. They just have, I don't know, five or 10, like uh, the quote-unquote good old days. And the engineers can deal with all the rickety racketa and the and the techie things that go on in the background that make the cars run as well as possible. Because, let's be honest, what is the reason that you really fell in love with Formula One yourself, Jim? It was the cars and the technology and all this. It wasn't the. It wasn't just the purity of the sport. It was all the technology went into it. So why limit such a cool technology and let the engineers play a more direct role in the car's performance? Because that would, in effect, simplify the driver's lives, let them focus more on the driving, and I think would make it easier for them to do a better job. I think it gets back to the spending limits. And if this just means that the best teams can just keep getting better and the smaller team would have no chance of catching up. Cause I'm imagining a situation where uh, all these cars, of course, are streaming data back to the, uh, the pit wall. And then that, that data a lot of times is being transmitted back to the factories and people can monitor all kinds of things, but they can't make changes except in years past, they could, um, they could radio take to the drive. Okay. You know, something like uh, a, a brake caliper is getting warm, you know, set your bias rearward and deal with that. Or you know things like that, and if there's a safety issue now, like a like a tire puncture or a, a you know a critical brake situation or something like that, they can they can let them know about it. But otherwise, for performance gains, they're not allowed to say anything. But you could imagine a situation where if all these teams had the ability to change things on the fly, that you could have even just using the car's position, uh, you could have the a computer back in the pit wall 
changing the brake bias uh, and differential settings and, you know, energy regeneration and all kinds of things, corner by corner, you know, mid corner, you could say uh, just a map uh, that says, okay, every time the car is here, change the setting to that. And then, and then a tenth of a second later, change the setting to this other thing. And, um, and even things like kind of simulating traction control. Yeah, but that's, that's kind of wicked, right? I mean, it's kind of cool. To a certain extent, that's kind of, that's pretty sweet. Yeah, think I, about it. That's, that's pretty sweet. Technically, I agree, but but I think the problem is that that's the kind of thing that is so much harder to um, to sort of to communicate to viewers for one. And that you know, whether if you've got a car or driver combination who's just really talented, usually you can kind of tell what's going on and and you can see these moves and things like that. But if one car just goes way faster than another one and handles way better. Uh, just because it does, then then we don't know. Is that because the car is great? Because the engineers on the pit wall are great? Uh, is it because the driver did something amazing? So in a way, it's sort of an understandability thing. But I think the bigger concern is that, okay, the big teams would be able to dial that all in. And, and so then it's like, even though the drivers might be as good or maybe they're not as good, but the car is just super brilliant, uh, that would just make them continue to carry on and do better and better. And uh, the smaller teams would have no chance of catching up to all that kind of thing. So you could say the same thing about really advanced aerodynamics where it's like, oh, I'll take away those rules about how big the wing, the, how big the wings should be and uh, how these, how the exhaust should be and on all these kind of things. And then you end up with, okay, well, this team figured out some, you know, a blown diffuser thing or uh, various just clever workarounds uh, that end up with one team really dominating and then other people copy them and maybe they go down a certain, certain path or not. And in general, I think people prefer a more even playing field of not just a little trick to, to go and, and win and dominate, but uh, some combination of just the overall, you know, engineering talent within the rules that are there and somebody who could just drive the heck out of a car and really do something special in it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, okay. It's clearly not cut and dry, simple. It's either black or it's white, but uh, I feel like if that's the case, uh, then what should be done is simplify the cars greatly in the rules. We're like, okay, the cars can't have adjustable diffs. The cars can't have adjustable uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. It can't have an automatic coffee maker. I don't know. It can't have the advanced stuff and limit the cars, make them more pure racing machines that way, as opposed to, uh, I, it, to me, it seems kind of like a farce to say, well, what we'll do is limit the radio communications. Cause that's the root cause of this problem. Do you see what I'm getting at? I mean, it, I feel like we just got a formula one has you know a thousand different cuts and instead of figuring out what's causing the cuts in the first place um the world motorsport cancel keeps putting just putting new band-aids on oh here's a new band-aid oh here's a new band-aid oh here's a new band-aid that'll fix it and it's i'm i don't know here's an opportunity to simplify the sport and let's do that yeah and i guess to put it a different way what would it be terrible if all of a sudden they said, okay, now there's no restrictions on what you can tell your drivers over the radio. Um, would that be an unfair advantage for some teams? I mean, it's a little bit hard to sort of identify what exactly, what exact problem they're solving. Uh, I guess they could say they can do more with strategy and it's less in the driver's hands about, oh, these tires feel like they're going off. You know, and so I think I'm going to you know ask for a pit stop now rather than this, the, the teams looking at the data and doing that. Uh, but I think, you know, we still have that now. I feel like you can still make recommendations about things and you can argue a lot of things that, well, if your tire's about to go off, is that a safety issue? Like, you know, you probably talk about strategy before the race and uh, have some ideas of, hey, we're going to try to cover this guy who's our nearest competitor. So if he pits, I pit or what? You know, I feel like it's it's difficult to sort of say uh, specifically, at least for me, 
what the actual problem is that the radio band solves. But I kind of understand the spirit of what they're trying to do is that, you know, address the criticism of this is all about just the, the talent on the pit wall and not so much about this driver versus that driver, which is a subset of what some people want. Uh, but certainly for you and I, maybe we're not the best ones to talk about this because uh, seeing, uh, you know, I would watch an autonomous race series because that's interesting to see how well these engineers could make a race car that could drive itself around. Like, that's interesting to me, even though there's not a human in there at all. So to take it to sort of one extreme example, uh, some people would think that's the lamest thing in the world. I'm like, I think that's actually pretty cool because that's potentially a bunch of really talented people doing a thing with engineering that's really cool. So uh, I guess it's it's different strokes to some extent. And uh, in this case, it just kind of gets back to this dichotomy of is it a sport uh, where it's all about kind of the gladiator attitude and this guy versus that guy or girl in some point co- in some point or whatever or is it more of entertainment where it's just I, I just want to pay my couple hundred bucks and I want to sit there and watch some cool thing and uh, you know watch it go or is it kind of the, the engineering and sort of thinking about is this this noble uh, progress pushing forward that's making cars better for the rest of the world and uh, affecting road cars and, and technology that we can drive and all that and it's a mishmash of all three really but uh, I guess we all have our different priorities. Well, that's just it. I think if they do it right, that it is, in fact, all three. And I think the best way to do it right is to just listen to everything I say. Because, come on, it's good stuff here. I'm giving you guys gold. Formula Robin. So, uh, by the way, I had a couple of moments of downtime, and I got busy with Excel Uh-oh. making a spreadsheet or two. And this race in Australia is encouraging because there's hope that we're not going to have anything near what we had in 2014 or 2015. However, what I did was I came up with a simple model to see if we have another absolute runaway season, what is the earliest uh, race in the championship that uh, the Drivers' World Championship and the Constructors' World Championship could be locked up. So the assumption I made was that a driver, one single driver, would win every single race and that every other, all other 21 drivers would just get an equal distribution of points. So each driver would get the... So it would be one driver wins the championship and it's a second-way tie otherwise okay and the math works out because there's 21 other drivers and 21 races so that was helpful anyway in the circumstance the fastest time that a driver could win the driver's world championship is the 13th round so after the 12th round there would still be a chance for another driver to just start winning all the races and Uh, take it over. However, on the 13th round, there would be no stopping and that would be the uh, Drivers' World Championship. And that's the Belgian Grand Prix. That would be in Spa. So what I'm going to kind of keep an eye on is to see how close to this... uh, I I don't want to call it ideal because it would not be the entertaining thing if one driver just kept winning. But... I'm going to keep an eye on how close or how far away we get from this perfect season for one driver versus the everything's down to the wire, very last race, very last lap, kind of like what we had in 2008. And if you take this step and say two drivers are always winning first and second, kind of like Mercedes did in the first round, 
which is the fastest time that the World Constructors title could be won, and that is the 14th round, which would be the Italian Grand Prix. So this is just a, just a funny little thing I saw. So absolute worst-case scenario in terms of competitiveness would be the driver wraps up on the 13th round and the constructor wraps up in the 14th round. And that's just going to be something I kind of keep an eye on uh, as the season goes on. And I'll say one more time, it was quite encouraging based on the performances we had in Australia that, that we won't have to worry about this. Yeah, so I guess this you'll just keep tabs over the course of the season as uh, as things unfold. I guess it only makes sense if uh, if one driver is running away from it that we can sort of see, well, could it have been worse? And then this spreadsheet will tell us that. Is that a fair way of characterizing uh, what will... What, what values we'll be getting out of the spreadsheet. Yes, yeah, ex- exactly right. And uh, let me reiterate, the most important part of this is that I did something cool on Excel. Had a wild Saturday night. <laughs> I mean, look, it, it, to me, I was curious. I was like, well, when when could a driver... I, I was curious myself, like, okay, when could a driver wrap this up? I was like, well, well, clearly they could do it after halfway. I'm like, no, 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 because other drivers have to score points. So how would that all play out? So the way that works is is this way. So uh, it's the 13th round that the driver could wrap it up. Now, last year, uh, Lewis Hamilton wrapped up the driver's championship well ahead of time. It was Austin, Texas. There were still three rounds to go. Three or four. It was definitely, it was at least three. So that was nowhere near the ideal in terms of the competitiveness. And now we can now we can just kind of quantify that a little bit. That's that's kind of the root of it. So yeah, I don't know. Fun things with Excel. You made a thing with Excel. Uh, before we move on, I would like to talk about some uh, listener feedback and predictions, uh, which we forgot to mention in the previous show, and I really apologize for that because uh, I think a lot of people uh, did not remember about predicting, including you and I, until the very last minute. So uh, we'll talk about that. But the uh, podium interview from Australia. Uh, this this was an interesting one. <laughs> so, uh, I'm going to go a step farther and say it was a good one. I think so as well. So we saw Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, around. I think he waved the flag to start the race, or at least did some kind of ceremonial thing. Uh, so the, he sort of seemed like the the threat was that it would be Arnold Schwarzenegger doing interviews again. Uh, that was not the case. And one Mark Webber got on the podium for conducting the interviews. So it was, uh, I mean, the you know certainly the funny moments uh, with. Um, with Vettel dumping champagne on his head. And, you know, I, I was kind of hoping, I was really hoping for a multi-21 joke. That didn't really happen. But at least there was some friendly back and forth and there were, it was a self-aware moment of, yes, okay, this is a past driver, but just a very recent past driver and uh, former teammate of Vettel and competitor against Hamilton and Nico. And current Formula Endurance Championship winner. Yes, yeah. This is a champion we're talking to. That's right. So I think I think it was a lot of fun. Uh, I think Weber was a great choice. Uh, the crowd, uh, I think, would uh, would dig him as an Aussie driver, and uh, and just you know seems like an all around good dude. So it was it was a, a very good choice to have him because it wasn't a you know you can imagine a lot worse questions being asked, and uh, even some of the old drivers they they want to sort of show themselves as being relevant, so they sort of want to have. And I mean, Weber's question was his original thing uh, was a super long winded sort of ten questions embedded in the one question sort of thing. Uh, which I feel like for the first thing you ask the winner of the race, uh, just something like, hey, yeah, we just won. And like, or hey, you know, congratulations. Like, how do you feel or something? Because, you know, the response isn't really going to be answering all 10 points in your question. It's going to be, hey, everybody, thank you for coming out or whatever. So it was, it's still, it, it's funny how quickly uh, one changes from 
being the excited driver who just got out of the race car and, and, you know, won the race or is on the podium or whatever to the interview where it's a lot more of, oh, I'm going to ask this really technical question and this is going to be really interesting. So um, it was it was a little bit funny in that regard, but I thought it was cool. Uh, see Mark Weber again, and uh, certainly the back and forth of Vettel uh, was was a lot of fun. And Vettel says, "Oh, you should be my teammate," and ha ha. And then he says, "Oh no, I'm too old for that." But uh, it'd be funny if, if, if you know Weber at that point says, "Ah, screw you, I'm a champion right now in World Endurance." Like, you know, what do you got uh, for championships in uh, you know last couple of years? So anyway, that's uh, right, that's right. No one's number two at my new team. Yeah. So anyway, that that was good and a a very solid choice, much better than a lot of the other kind of uh, strange picks we've had over the years at various events and. Uh, Good to see Mark Weber again around Formula One. And as you mentioned, we had uh, a lot of great uh, conversations and feedback on Facebook with uh, the Fun With Cars page talking about predictions. And uh, a lot of people missed that and were, were hoping like, well, I, I let me first say that I'm proof that anything can happen. I mean, I might as well not have played <laughs> this time. But let me say... Real quick, before we get into that, my my guess was totally solid. It just was bad luck. So uh, there was that. But also we had a really great conversation about uh, the new qualifying format that happened and, and things like that. So definitely come to our Facebook page and be a part of the conversation because it's a way to kind of keep the podcast conversation continuing at, you know on a regular basis throughout in between the Formula One races and throughout the weekends themselves. But uh, yeah, getting predictions, uh, Jim, as the co-winner, why don't you take it away? So first of all, uh, for any new listeners or recent people that have found the show since, uh, certainly since the last few episodes where we didn't talk about predictions at all, uh, just a quick introduction to what the heck we're talking about. So this is a Facebook app. Uh, It's part of our Facebook page. And yes, you do have to have a Facebook account to uh, be a part of this, although I guess you don't have to use your real name or anything if you're concerned about any of that. But if you go to facebook.com slash fwcars, First of all, you can like the page there, which will make it a lot easier. You won't have to look up the link every time. But along the top of the page, there's a couple of tabs there, and one of them is predictions. It's also available as a link down the left-hand side of the page. But on there, uh, the whole idea is this just a fun uh, little game to play as the season progresses uh, where we predict two things. One, who we think is going to be on pole position for the next race, and the other one is who we think is going to win. So not super complicated. We're not doing a whole grid. We're not worrying about fastest laps and practice times and all this kind of stuff. Uh, really, you know, fairly simple. Uh, but our uh, talented prediction stud himself, Neil Popham, deserves all the credit for actually implementing this Facebook app and maintaining it and keeping it up to date with new drivers and new teams and various things that have happened. And even when there are penalties post-race and he said, oh, this guy won. Oh, no, it turns out that guy won. Neil is great about all this stuff. So massive credit goes out to Neil for maintaining this app. Neil's basically the guy that uh, keeps the world going round. So if you're not taking part in that, it is not too late to start. Uh, it's just go down under predictions. And if you're logged in and connected to our page, you can just click make your prediction. And you give the, you got radio buttons for all the different drivers that are in there. So if you think that maybe, you know, Jensen Button, for example, is going to be on pole position all season. And you think Jensen Button is going to go on to win, like when Will Carver happens to think, then you can set that. And with our prediction set up, uh, the prediction is, is held until you go and change it. So if you go in right now and predict, someone for pole and someone for the win, um, regardless of what the outcome is of that next particular race, it doesn't reset to zero. It it just carries that prediction on forward. So if you think that you just have your one favorite driver and you just want to see um, how close would it be to correct if this guy, you know, how far is this guy from pole every race and how far is he from the win? Uh, you can just set your prediction and then just come back at the end of the season and check it. And uh, if you have a really notable prediction, either a super really good one or potentially a hilariously bad one, uh, we may mention about it on the show. 
but it's just a fun thing to do to carry on. And then uh, near the end of the season, we can really see uh, who's made really accurate predictions and who's just happened to predict correctly and uh, you know, see how that goes from there and give uh, credit where it's due for people that are really doing a good job there. So uh, no amazing prizes or anything except our ongoing love and admiration and uh, mentions on the show and things like that. But uh, the whole point is the you want the lowest score possible. So uh, the, the scoring is um, you pick someone for pole position and you get a point for every position away from pole that that person qualifies. And for the win, it's the same thing. So as many sp- spots away from the win that that driver finishes is how many points you get. So zero points would be an ideal one if you correctly pick who's going to be on pole and who's going to win. And for Australia 2016, we have zero people predicting uh, correctly. So uh, no zero point uh, scorers today. Uh, we had se- we had three Rosberg-Rosberg predictions and uh, about uh, 18 or so uh, Hamilton-Hamilton predictions, including mine. And then a couple Rosberg-Hamiltons, but no one predicted that Hamilton would be on pole and Rosberg would win. So, so far... It is a 20-way tie for first place uh, among all the people who either thought Rosberg would be on pole and win or Hamilton Hamilton. Uh, and then there's a couple other options. Hamilton Vettel, Rosberg Vettel, Hamilton Raikkonen. Uh, one Robin Warner near the bottom with a Raikkonen Raikkonen prediction, uh, which... Probably some kid that just didn't even know what he was doing. Right, which in this case was worth 20 points because uh, through qualifying and race finish with, of course, the uh, fiery uh, Ferrari engine explosion... Uh, meant that Where was, was Kimi Raikkonen? Kimi Raikkonen qualified fourth. He was nipping at the. He could have. He could have gotten on the podium with a different qualifying format. And then he was second in the race for a good long time. And then things caught fire. That was not his fault. Is my point. That was bad luck and nothing else. Kimi Raikkonen is not too old, and he is a very good driver. And I like him, and he's good. Kimi is good, and he deserved better. Right. What we are not predicting is who is good. What we are predicting is where people actually start the race and where people actually finish the race. That's right, because if we were predicting who is good, I'd be at the top, because Kimi Raikkonen is good. Boom. That's one way of looking at it. Um, also, in case of... That, uh, that, is, that is the best way to look at it. Penalties and things like that, we also we count where someone actually starts the race. So even if they qualify first, but then they get a penalty or get disqualified or something like that, and end up starting last... You get points as though it's last. So that's just the, the, the last of the technical little rules. And everything else is, I think, pretty straightforward. Notable mention goes to Will Carver, who is continuing his tradition from last year of predicting button for pole and button for the win, which has not been super successful for him last year. I think he was the highest point scorer, which is not really ultimately what people are trying for. But hey, points, well, for, points for spirit. We don't know what his actual motivation was. It might have been incredibly successful for getting more shout outs than anybody else because right. he got quite a few for sticking with that and it was impressive and continues to be impressive right so in this case the button button prediction was actually worse than the reckoning reckoning prediction uh, and was worth 24 points so there you have it but if you personally have not stopped by fun with cars on facebook and clicked on predictions to enter your prediction please do so because like you say there are 21 rounds this season uh, there's plenty of time to to catch up and plenty of chaos that can happen over the whole rest of the season. And uh, it's a lot of fun to take part in that and uh, see how, how everything stacks up. So uh, it's a great app. Thanks again to Neil Popham for creating and maintaining that. And now, sir, you and I uh, have to decide who we think is going to be on pole and win the Bahrain Grand Prix. Well, that's easy because I already know who's going to be on pole and win the Grand Prix. Yes. That's, uh, yes. So... This is what's going to happen, okay? Lewis Hamilton is going to repeat his feat of being on the pole position and maybe, just maybe, will set a new track record in the process. By the way, Mr. We Need a Thousand Horsepower folks, Lewis Hamilton 
made a new lap record in qualifying around the Australian Grand Prix. It was two tenths, three tenths faster than Michael Schumacher was in an F2004, which was V10 powered, well over 900 horsepower, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Lewis Hamilton was outright faster in his 2016 spec Mercedes. Anyway, he will do that again. He will be on pole. But one Sebastian Vettel is going to outwit him and finish first in the Bahrain Grand Prix. Vettel's going to win the race. All right. That's a reasonably uh, reasonably bold prediction with the Vettel victory, but uh, certainly seems plausible based on what we saw in Australia. The one thing we did not yet mention about the predictions game is that you and I are in competition with, A, all of our fans and anyone who wants to take part in the uh, in the game itself, but also the, uh, we call it Damien, the statistical, mod- no, heuristic model, right, that is yes. essentially a spreadsheet, uh, but all Damien is our reference, is sort of our, hey, are we actually any cleverer than a simple system? And all that Damien does is says, whoever was on pole last time is going to be on pole again, and whoever won the last race, they're going to win again. So Damien, automatically, by virtue of being a computer, has already predicted that Hamilton will be on pole and that Rosberg will win in Bahrain. And if the season is super consistent, then Damien may come out better than all those humans. And uh, we think we're all clever with uh, knowing the races and the tracks and what suits who and, and who's strong and who's weak and all that. And uh, in some cases, Damien is just better because it's really simple and sometimes things are really consistent. So Damien thinks Hamilton Rosberg. I am going to actually leave what I've got in there for Hamilton on pole and Hamilton for the win. Uh, I think Hamilton's going to make it work. He, as you said, shattered the lap record in Australia and seems like uh, I have no reason to think he's not going to be really, really strong. So uh, I think Hamilton is going to carry on and uh, able to convert a pole position into a victory in Bahrain. And if he's not at the top, he's going to be very near the top. Uh, and I don't think his engine will be set on fire. And it won't be a matter of fireman versus iceman like it was for your prediction this week. It's novel and noble of you to be willing to be so wrong because clearly what uh, I've predicted is much more likely and indeed just more or less it's inevitable. It's destined to happen this way. So uh, good luck with uh, your fate. But uh, yeah, I guess we'll see what the consequences are of your decision and of mine in two weeks time when it is early April and the Formula One season begins again in Bahrain. Yes, and the last thing I will mention is that uh, we also occasionally tweet uh, using hashtag FWCars. That way, if whether you're following us or not, you can always uh, check along with you and me, Robin, tweeting, or other people that uh, just want to want to tweet and talk along with that hashtag. So uh, whether we're tweeting or not, in this case, okay, the Australian time zone uh, is a, does not line up super well with the uh, North American time zones. So uh, we were not staying up super late to watch qualifying and watch the race live and talk along with it on Twitter. But uh, it's always fun to take part over the course of the weekend. So if you're into Twitter, Check out hashtag FWCars, and of course you can follow us. We are on, uh, fun with cars, all spelled out with underscores in between the words. So uh, you can check that out and follow us there if you like. But really, visit funwithcars.com. There's links to everything we're talking about there. Uh, we do show notes on the page there as well, so you can see uh, links to uh, things that we talk about, previous episodes, uh, links to us on Twitter, all that kind of stuff, uh, Facebook and the predictions, all that kind of stuff is in there. So um, you can also send email to feedback at funwithcars.com if you're an email type of person. Uh, send us a message on Facebook, tweet at us, whatever you like. It's all good. And uh, we always appreciate hearing from our listeners. So thanks as always for listening. I am Jim Lyle. And I am Robin Warner. Good night.